belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message from May 14, 2023 is called No Contest. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Well, again, welcome. Uh, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, watching on the live stream, my name is John Ray. This is Grace Church, and we are really glad that you're here. As a kid, I hit a certain age where the absolute coolest thing to do was to take all my limited... Now, I'm really going to age myself here. Some of you are not going to get this. But to take all my limited allowance money and go to Spencer's Gifts and buy posters to decorate every inch of my walls, ceilings, doors with images of my heroes. So there was Peter Fonda on his Harley from Easy Rider. There was Charles Bronson from Death Wish. There was Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry. And of course, right over my bed on the ceiling, I'm going to go ahead and admit it, was the famous Farrah poster right there. But literally every inch of my walls, I just thought this was, this was my task, was to decorate with these images, dare I say, these idols. Just like these images plastered on the wall of a pre-teen boy's bedroom back in the 70s, the gods of Egypt's functioned in a similar way. They were a projection of what they believed about power, about beauty, about strength. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, we are going through the book of Exodus, um, looking at it from the perspective of what were the people being delivered from and what were they being delivered to with this. To not only see it as a historical document, but also as instructive for us as a people. And so we've been taking, we've been following a text that is provided by a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. And we look at his outline and he gives us small snippets of text, but they represent large chunks. So essentially we're looking at chapters 7 and 8. But without reading all of that, we want to read this one decisive text, which comes to us in chapter 8, verse 18. And it says, when the magicians attempted to bring forth gnats by their secret arts, they could not. So there were gnats on the people and the animals. Now, why is this so important? Well, the first three plagues that had been done by Moses, the Egyptian magicians, and that's not really a good word. That's not the best word. These were the the powerful people. These were the the people who were wise. These were the people who guided policy and um, the cultural expectations of the Egyptians. They were able to replicate those miracles. But when it comes to this fourth one, and there's ten in all, their power ran out. Their knowledge ran out. Their ability just ran out. They, They had to capitulate the game with that. Now we're going to talk about next week why it continued on after that for six more plagues, why it didn't just stop there. But just know that at this point there's a there's a change, there's a pivot 
that happens. And from now on, it is just Moses doing the miracles and the Egyptian um, literati, if we will, who are confounded and can't compete anymore. Thus the title of today's message, which is No Contest. And the big idea here is that God is always offering revelation through the consequences of our choices. He's, he's calling out, who do we idolize? Who do we invest with our admiration, our adoration, our imagination? Because those things and those people, those images, those ideas, they become our gods. Functionally, they become our gods. And our choices demonstrate what we truly believe what it is we truly love, who it is we are learning from, leaning on, where our ultimate allegiance lies. And God is constantly trying to reform our imagination and the way our imaginations guide our choices. And we see this clearly displayed in these ten plagues. So the ten plagues are apocalyptic in nature. Oftentimes the, the contest between Moses and the magicians and the back and forth is displayed as kind of like a football game, like a match. It's a, it's a power on power, and it's not that at all, y'all. This would be like by the by the second inning, if you're using a baseball analogy, they, they've, been, they've called the game due to a mercy rule because one team has scored so many more points than the other. Like there's no point in playing the game anymore. It's over by the second inning. It's over by the first quarter. There's just no more contest, yet it continues. So it's got to be more than just, hey, God is ex exerting might, showing that God can win. There's something else going on here. And I believe what that is is this apocalypse. And apocalypse is a funny word. It's, it's, it's used in weird ways in our society. It just means unveiling. It just means revelation. It just means showing things for what they are, things that may be hidden, things that may be a, a little bit obscure or obscured. The, the, the curtain's pulled back. They're exposed for what they are. And that's what we see here. Because each one of these plagues confronts a particular idol in Egypt. These are not just a rambling associate, a rambling assembly of things that God's like, oh, what are going to do next? Ah, oh, let's send them frogs. Mm, what's after frogs? Ah, oh, let's do gnats. It's, no, it's not like that at all. This is a this is a very, very specific um, working through a list of deities if you will, with this. So the first one, when the water is turned to blood, the, the water of the Nile is turned to blood, that's Hapti. That's confronting the god of the Nile. So there was an Egyptian god, Hapti, who was the god of the Nile, and the Nile was the life giver, the source of water. So God is saying, hey, I have that power over that. That god, Hapti, is not God, I am. I'm revealing that your worship of this god as that is, is not getting you good things. It's, it's, you're wrong. You're on the wrong path. Frogs coming from the Nile, that's Heket, the goddess of fertility and renewal. Two gods down. Lice coming from the earth dust, that's Geb, the god of the earth. So God is god of the water, god of fertility, god of the earth. Then we get into the swarms of flies. Kefri, god of creation, movement, the sun, and rebirth. The death of the cattle and livestock, that's Hathor, the goddess of love and protection, put down. Ashes turned to boils and sore. Isis, goddess of medicine and peace, is proved to be an illusion. 
Hail from the fire in the form of fire is from Nut, the goddess of the of the sky. That's she, her power is put away. The locust sent from the sky. That's against Seth, the god of storms and disorder. <clears throat> god demonstrates God's ability over that god. The ninth plague: three days of complete darkness. This was. And they, they kind of escalate in a way. They start with a very powerful one with the Nile. They kind of go through the minor ones, and they end up with the big ones. Ra, the sun god. Even if you don't know anything about Egyptian mythology, you've probably heard of Ra, the sun god. The god of Israel blots Ra out for three days. And then the last, the death of the firstborn. And here's where we don't get a um, hieroglyphic of a god or an imagination of a god, an imaginary god. This is a direct confrontation to Pharaoh's son. Because Pharaoh was supposed to be the god of light, the living incarnation of all the gods. And so by the death of the firstborn, the greatest of the gods, the god in human form in Egypt mythology was witness. And so each one of these is an apocalypse to the people, not just, not just a show to put on to deliver the Israelites, but an unveiling for everybody involved, the Egyptians included. If we believe that God is merciful, if we believe that God is God of all creation, we have to believe that there was an intention here for the Egyptians to learn, as well as the Israelites with that. And it's easy to think also that, hey, if we had been confronted with this, if we were the Israelites or, or the Egyptians, you know, with one or two, we quickly would have learned our lesson. We would have quickly been the first, or quickly been there to say, okay, our gods are false, Israel gods are true. Let's worship those gods. But it's really not that easy, is it? Think about it for a minute. What happens when we're confronted with the truth in our own lives? When something that we've invested in proves to be a bust or wrong? We'd like to think, myself, I'd like to think, that I would humbly accept it and change accordingly. This is otherwise known as repentance. Or maybe just learning. But I dare say that most of us, at least for a time, respond exactly like Pharaoh did. Look, we're going to get into, was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Did he harden his heart? How did that work? But the truth is, we all know this intuitively. We live in a society right now where people are doubling down on what they know to be false. Maybe not just doubling down, but tripling down. That they're guided more by tribal affiliation than they are to the truth. And I'm not pointing any fingers out there that I'm not pointing at myself. Where, where people are guided more by an imagination that they've invested in that they don't want to admit is wrong or broken. There's this thing called sunk cost theory. 
Anybody heard of this? Anybody familiar with this? Right? Like, we know what this is. Yeah, you just got your MBA, right? Like, you obviously know what cost there is. It's this idea that you've invested in something for so long that something bad or negative happens to actually show that this investment is bad. And instead of pulling your money out, your investment out, you actually invest more into it. Because you don't want to admit that you bet on a loser or that you've invested in something that's going to fail. So you, you actually put more of yourself into it as some kind of way of, of turning the boat around or, or proving that it's really not wrong, that it's not an unwise investment. You just put more into it. Y'all, this is everywhere right now. It may be acute now, but it's always been there with us as people. We've always done that. And like I said, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is super easy to understand when we understand that. And ultimately, it tells us much more about Pharaoh, about our hearts, than it does about God. Because, listen, the text is just confusing here. The text is super confusing. In 1 point Exodus 7.13, it, it translates it this way. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. And he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. So the indication here is that God had nothing to do with it. God just said, hey, Moses, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Pharaoh's heart's going to be hard when this happens. But then later on, a couple chapters later, it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart as he did not listen to him, just as the Lord had predicted to Moses. So now we go, wait, wait, his heart... His heart was hardened. No, and it's like, wait, no, God hardened his heart. And then a couple verses later, it says, so Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he did not release the, the, the Israelites. It's like, well, hold on. Well, then who did that? How did that work? And so instead of, because I think we can get real caught up in, well, did God cause this? Is it free will? Is it it's a predestination? What is it? It doesn't matter. All that matters is that his heart was hardened, and we all know what that's like. Because we have all hardened our hearts. We have all had a parent who comes to gently rebuke us or teach us something, and as a stiff-necked child decided that we are going to double down on being right just because our parents are telling us this. Here's a Mother's Day sermon for you. How often have we, our mothers, come to us with the with perfect and pure intent in order to inform us something to save us from suffering? And our immediate response is, the hell I am. And we harden our heart. And you know what? The mom probably could have looked at that and go, let me tell you what's going to happen when I do this. She could predict that exactly what's going to happen. When I go tell my kid this, this is what they're going to do. They're going to do the opposite. So who, who hardened the kid's heart? Did the mother, by actually giving the instruction that she knew would result in that? Or was it the child that did it? It, it really doesn't matter. We just know that it happens. And that's what happened here. Now, thankfully, 
thankfully, it happens to us without such severe repercussions, at least individually. But I dare say as a collective, we are seeing the effects, the tragic repercussions of this as doing this as a people, as a society, as a culture, with that. So what's the, cha- what's the way forward here? What is the, the invitational imagination that allows us to step into the discomfort, the disorientation necessary for change? If we understand that my first response is going to be, no, I'm going to double down on this, I'm going to triple down on this, I'm going to, I'm going to sink more of my investment into this losing bet, we begin to recognize that that is, well then what, how do we go out of that into the humiliation, the disorientation? How do we walk out of that into something new? Well, that's the challenge. And honestly, this is just one of those things that once we recognize what the challenge is, we're, we're more than halfway towards the answer, towards the solution. You see, we must compromise our convenience and our control, control being the predominant idol in our society, physically, emotionally, control, for what God wants. We must compromise those conveniences for God. We must walk into a mystical unknowing. We must walk by faith. But this is so difficult at times that it seems impossible. It would be really inconvenient. We all look at this and we go, this would be really inconvenient for my job, for my relationships. This would be really inconvenient for me. And more than inconvenient, it would be really painful. It would be sorrowful. And here's here's the real banger on this whole thing. Even if we as individuals or a small community want to change, What difference does that make in a world that doesn't want to change? Even if you, me, us as individuals, as a small collective of individuals, that we want to change the course, but the whole world is going this way and we're this little group going this way, what? why bother? Why bother with that? Because we know the truth, y'all. Because we've been shown the mercy and given the grace to know what is real, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Not all of it, not fully, but at least enough. And even in our own struggle, it reveals to us and gives us an understanding of helps us, it helps us understand the encounter that is truly horrifying for the people of Egypt. It seems so radically unfair that the average Egyptian citizen who had no no say in in Pharaoh's decision, no place in the imperial court, that their children died, that their crops were eaten, that they suffered boils, that they suffered like all the land of Egypt did. Why did they have to suffer from the decisions of a very small few it affected everyone today. Well, we understand this in our own suffering. I dare say that many of us in here have been decision makers when it comes to climate change or politics, things like that that are going on that affect all of us. I mean, Jeff, 
Are you responsible for global warming? I don't think so. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Right. <laughs> yet, yet we all suffer from that. And so we can do, um, well, we can do one of three things. We can double down and triple down on the existing order. Order. We can stick our fingers in the ear and, and just na 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 na. You know, pretend that it's not happening. Or we can say, "Yes, it is all going to hell, and I'm out of here," and go form some utopian community separate somewhere from that, where we're not responsible. We're going to take our basketball and go play somewhere else. And we're not going to deal with anybody else. And this has been the response throughout the years. Or this third way that involves a giving up of control and comfort, a giving up of the utopian, wishful thinking attitude, at the same time, a giving up of a nihilistic, just whatever happens out of and we walk faithfully with the knowledge of what we are called to. To follow the one who set the course in the midst of the same kind of world we live in now. Who demonstrated in his body what it meant to be fully human, fully obedient, fully faithful, and yet not in control. To suffer for the good of others with an imagination that that will ultimately, we may not see it, but that will ultimately bring restoration to this world with it. The people of Israel are being called out of, they're being called out of this place of idolatry to these false gods. Their power is revealed as being not nearly anything compared to the real God, and they're being called into this wilderness they're not called to take over. It's really interesting, right? They're not called to overthrow Pharaoh and take over Egypt. Think about it. That would be a much more logical choice to me. Just beat the Egyptians. Take over the temple. Start, start a new Egypt. Right? Make Egypt Israel again. I don't know. Um... But they're not. They're called, as we're going to see as the story progresses, they're called into the wilderness. They're called into this place of stripping away all of this Egyptian imagination. All of these Egyptian habits. All of these slave ways of being. But they have to go through the wilderness to do that. Same as us. Same as us. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And as we begin our transition into a time of taking communion, uh, giving our offering, reflecting, praying, I want to invite all of you to consider this. Whose poster is it you have on your wall right now? Whose power are you trusting in? Who is it that you're idolizing? Is your heart becoming softer or harder? 
Are you more compassionate, caring, and attentive, or less? Whose image are you being formed by and into? Whose imagination fills your mind and your heart? Is it Egypt or is it Israel? At Grace, we practice radical hospitality, the invitation and opportunity to deeply belong as a way of demonstrating what it is we believe about God, ourselves and others. This practice also forms us more and more into who we are called to become. This is guided by what we say we believe as well as informs and refines our statements of faith. And that is primarily based at this table. Our communion table is open to everyone because we are not the ones who are serving. This isn't our table. This is the table of Jesus, and he sets it, and he serves. He chooses who gets to come, and he says everybody's welcome. So that's what we do. There is no head, there is no foot. Jesus serves, and Jesus is also served here. And so was beautifully expressed in the poem that Jane read. It is his body that is broken. It is his body that gives us sustenance. So of course you're Of course you're Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.